Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Design of Season 3. I'm Wills Francis, and my co-host Justin is actually traveling back from Nashville today. He was participating in a conference with some of our friends over at StoryBrand. They host a great podcast on business and messaging and branding, so be sure to check that out. Our guest on the show today is Kelsey Timmerman, an author, activist, and speaker who has given his life to exploring the interconnectedness of our world, particularly in the realm of markets, manufacturing, and all that goes along with that. He explains it all, so I'm going to get out of the way and let you hear from Kelsey. He's a super fun dude who I think you're going to love. And this is Design Of. Kelsey, thank you for uh, being on our show. Um, did, did you know we had a podcast? Yes, of course I know we had a podcast. I'm like your biggest fan. Yeah. I've listened to like four of them, which is like, got to be like 40% of all the podcasts, <laughs> right? Well, compared to most of our guests, you're in the upper echelon. Yeah. Have yeah, you read shit. all of my books? Yes, I have actually. Wills? I've, um, he's told me about all of them. Oh, see? Yeah. Yeah, I wish there would. Uh, I could say that there was just a plan ever. There's like never really been a plan. You know, I w- left my small town in Ohio to go to college, which is like an hour and a half away. Undecided was basically my major, and then I ended up <laughs> graduating with a degree in anthropology, which in hindsight was really a great thing to major in because you know study of cultures like throughout time and kind of taught me how to be curious about people and respectful of other cultures and realize I'm like carrying all this baggage around as I'm traveling around the world and, and yeah. so, like a, a tradition or something that might happen where I kind of first like that that's not right you know with anthropology kind of teaches you to take a step back and try to appreciate cultures in their own terms so I, I graduated and I worked for a couple months and actually the grandma I'm going to go visit gives all the grandkids five thousand dollars when they graduate oh wow yeah so it was like sweet you know so my, hold on when you graduate, grandma forks out 5,000 bones for you to do whatever. No strings attached, right? Wow. Probably wow. with judgment <laughs> attached, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, my brother and cousins, they probably did like responsible <laughs> things with their money. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to go save up some more, add to grandma's money. I'm, I traveled for six months. I booked a one-way ticket to... Australia that had a three-week layover in Hawaii on the way. You know, like that was no plans. That was it. This is one of the things we're going to talk about later because this is the Kelsey I know. So okay. you went to Australia and you went to all these other places with zero plan, correct? Zero plan. I was there during September 11th. I just woke up one morning in uh, Sydney, and I always love reading the local papers wherever I'm going just to kind of pick up the world's events. And yeah. And, and read the local, it's really kind of read the, read the local news, like news that really doesn't really impact you, but it's just interesting to see what yeah. other people are dealing with. Experience their culture, get yeah. their perspective, yeah. So that's what I did. I was staying in King's Cross, which is ultimately where I sold my car, and I just, wow. I mean, the world changed. And uh, I was thinking about leaving Australia before that, and I was like, you know what? I think I'll just stay here for a little while. <laughs> so I was there in Australia for three months, and then I went to Thailand, Nepal, and Nepal I had an awesome experience where I stayed with... Um, um, Tibetan monks for like three weeks. It was unreal. Like I was went there to go hiking. Yeah. And I was on the airplane sitting next to this this monk who I you know we were like talking a whole lot. We were watching the show Osmosis Jones. You know, remember <laughs> Osmosis Jones? Yeah, yeah. So eventually we started to bond over Osmosis Jones, like Chris Rock as a white blood cell. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. what's not to love about that movie? I'm probably the only one that actually remembers this movie. Yeah. And so we were laughing about that, and then he's like. Um, where do you stay? What, where are you going to stay when you get to Kathmandu? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, 
I, I don't think I called him dude, but yeah. I was like, I don't have any, I don't have any plans. I have no idea. So when I was in Australia, I ended up buying a round the world plane ticket with my car money. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So then I, you guys keep flying the same direction. So I went to Thailand and then to Nepal. Okay. Right. So the guy's like, yeah, hey, you can come stay with me. I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and he ends up being, I don't think this is the official term. I think he's like a black belt monk. I mean, he's not, but he's like way up there. He's like a head monk, right? Yeah. yeah. And he's head of the uh, lamasery. And he and so they're building the school, and I go, and I'm helping them get ready for this big event. And I meet his teacher, comes in, and this guy's supposed to be bulletproof, like escape China, and, you know, just amazing yeah. stuff. Wow. So it ended up being this, like, way better cultural experience than I would have uh, had hiking yeah. just like doing the tourist hiking thing <laughs> yeah. and I think that's kind of really when I started to see like these you know I would love to introduce other people to to these people back in Tibet you know like to, to people in my hometown right. where there's little to no diversity of the people or the landscape you yeah. know and and kind of show them this world when you sit with Kelsey you notice that the monastic life likely wasn't much of a stretch for him. His authentic, loose-handed approach towards life may make those of us more tightly wound legitimately concerned for his safety. He would be the first to tell you that while he never fully unpacks his suitcase, he's not cut out for a life of total vagabondedness. So in Hawaii, I get my dad's cousin lives in Hawaii, and he's a taxi driver. He's he hitchhiked to Hawaii 30 years ago. So says the family legend. <laughs> We go camping, and it turns out my uh, cousin Ben is homeless. He's lives in his car now, and like, and and I saw this life ahead of me of just like traveling around, working different jobs, and you know, which was his experience, like being the ultimate vagabond, and that's what he'd done for thirty years. So it was almost like a visit from like Christmas future, like future <laughs> like, potential Kelsey. Yeah, like yeah. right away, and and kind of like I I, I need to have some focus here, you know. Um, at some point, I just can't be <laughs> not right time. now, but but maybe yeah, later. Right. Yeah, yeah. The clock is ticking. Like, <laughs> like this could be this yeah. could be me someday. I started writing about some of my travels and started to get published in a, a, a weekly newspaper in Key West, and I had a travel column like it was a thousand words and the oh, one cool. photo, and 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 I ended up doing that for I think about two years. Kelsey's an avid Jimmy Buffett fan and eventually found himself living a life that sounds an awful lot like a Jimmy Buffett song. He moved to Key West, Florida, where he became a dive instructor while taking on small writing projects on the side. Yeah, so I, I continued to work as a dive instructor and I'd go off and save up money and travel and blow, blow on my travel and start writing about it some more and get paid like 10 bucks for a story on Kosovo, right? <laughs> you know, like it, was just this, it was like the world's most expensive hobby. And I knew I could go anywhere in the world and just be fascinated by wherever I was and the people I met there. Uh, so I was looking for a place to go because I know I wanted to go somewhere, but like, how do you choose all these places? So I had this t-shirt that had Tattoo from Fantasy Island on it, shown in the late <laughs> 70s, early 80s. Um, oh, come on, we know who Tattoo is. Yeah, okay, yeah. well not yeah. everybody does, yeah. right? Okay. Not everybody does. Yeah. Um, so he's the guy who said the plane to plane, in yeah. case someone's listening yeah. and yeah. doesn't remember that. Um, so it said, come with me to my tropical paradise on this shirt. and I'm like, well, I won't, you know. But it seems like a fitting shirt to have if you're in Key West. Yeah, right? Yeah, right? This is kind of the paradise. Yeah. So kind of part of me made me think, like, you know, where is this tropical paradise? What if I went, this random act of travel, just wherever the shirt was made, and had adventures there? Mm-hmm. So I checked the tag, and it was made in Honduras. 
and I booked a plane ticket. So uh, I went jungle hiking, island exploring, scuba diving, had adventures in Honduras, and I thought I should at least go where the shirt was made to the factory, you know, where it was made. And I, so I put on the shirt, and I show up at the factory, and like, I hadn't had a haircut in forever. I had like this white fro happening. <laughs> it was just amazing. And I'm like, hey, can I have a, this shirt that was made here? Now I'm here, like wearing it. Can I have a tour of your factory? And they're like, who are you? And like, why are you here? All questions I had no <laughs> idea how to respond to. I wasn't sure who I was or why I was there. Because in hindsight, you, they probably thought you were crazy. Yeah. And I think, hindsight, I think I was too. You know, it, made, it made no sense. I mean, it was just that random. And I met a guy that was my exact same age. I was 25 at the time, and his name was Emil Carr. And I learned, I talked to him, with him for about 10 minutes, maybe. And it kind of got really awkward really fast to be like, well, I have this shirt and I came here all, you know, on a whim because it was made here. And now you're the guy that made it. And uh, what do I what do I say to you? You know, and, and I think once I saw him and it, it kind of got real. Um, what you know, I had these questions for him. What do you get? What do you get paid? What's your job like? What's your life like? This job provided a better life for you and your family. And I didn't ask any of those questions. Mm. But those questions really were kind of planted in college, studying anthropology and sociology, and um, those questions kind of really haunted me for a long time. After that, after I met him, um, you know, I continued on with my travels and. Then I wanted to know, and I kept looking at the tags, kind of became obsessed with where stuff came from, and wanted to know what life was like for those people, and wanted to ask the questions this time. So I uh, decided I was gonna go follow this obsession. I had like a couple small like radio assignments um, along the way, but nothing that made any sense to go to Bangladesh, Cambodia, and China over the course of three months. Yeah. So I had a pair of Jingle These Christmas Boxers from Bangladesh, <laughs> right? So they were just so funny, I had to follow those. Um, and also Bangladesh, I, you know, I think I just kind of got lucky. I don't think I knew that much about it going into, but to pick Bangladesh is like such a key uh, country and market when it comes to the apparel industry. You know, we've seen some horrible things happen. And I was there in 2007 and, you know, the factory collapsed in Bangladesh. It killed 1,134 people that happened. I think two or three years ago now. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's just like a really booming market. So to go there it was really a, a, a good accident, I think. Um, I followed my Levi's blue jeans to Cambodia and uh, where I met like, you know, these, uh, these young women who lived, there's about eight of them in a room by, it was about 10 foot by 12 foot in dimension and just to, you know, sit and listen to them and ask them questions and actually travel with them back to their village to meet their families and kind of what these jobs away from home meant to the family. Um, it was pretty powerful as well. And I went to China where my flip-flops were made, my type of flip-flops. So those are the items. And later on, uh, actually I was traveling with you in Kenya and I ended up doing a second edition of Where Am I Wearing and I ended up including travels to Ethiopia where I went to a living wage shoe company. But I think what really, uh, experience that really kind of set me, made me, you know, step back was one in Cambodia where I visited a city dump um, outside Phnom Penh where, you know, there's just trash heaps. And if you go to any developing country, like, you know, capital city or whatever, there will be a trash heap somewhere outside town and people will live in that trash heap and people will collect, you know, recyclables and sell them. And, and 
for me, this was the worst place I've ever been in my entire life. Um, it's horrible. I mean, it was hell on earth. It was, you know, they burn the trash and it spills forth the smoke that burns your eyes and made. I had to fight really hard not to vomit. Um, and here these people were working there, uh, diving, I mean, digging through the trash, looking for something of value, treasure, trash, discard or keep, and uh, you have this excavator picking up stuff at the same time. And it's just, just really hard to to see people in that situation to like look into their eyes and and I mean, I'm sure you've seen this Justin where where it's just like there's sometimes there's a hollowness um and like like they've kind of like they've given up somewhere in there you know it's like this the, is that lack of hope yeah the light yeah. is the light is gone in their eyes and mm-hmm. you know this 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 is our existence and I saw an 11 year old and some of her friends picking through older trash, and um, you know, and I looked at that that girl, and and I had this thought of, would she be better off working in a garment factory? Mm-hmm. And that really, that experience really helped me kind of see the complexities of the world. Even though we're much more comfortable when it's like this um, binary situation, bad or good, you know, child labor is bad, you know, um, kids going to school is good. But that's not the reality in which we which we live in. So that experience kind of made me see like the nuance of everything and challenge myself to like see this and like is am I really having this thought? Am I really thinking that would this girl be better off working uh, in a blue jean factory? And it's still not that simple. I'm not saying she, she she would be even today, but it's much more complex than we're comfortable with. Yeah, it's easy I think for us Westerners to think about this and say that ecosystem needs to go away. When if it did go away, it would in some ways be just as damaging as, and maybe more so than it is actually existing. Yeah. It's easy to make snap judgments about the plight of the global poor and what should be done to alleviate their suffering. When we drop people and organizations and markets and communities into these binary, good guy, bad guy, predator, victim scenarios, we lose much of the nuance that's needed to arrive at meaningful, lasting change. Unfortunately, poverty and its effects are complex problems that need complex answers. Uh, a, a young woman named Nari, I think she was in her early 20s, who worked at a factory in Cambodia. I was like, well, well um, you know, people in the United States think that maybe we shouldn't buy the stuff that you make because you're not treated fairly. And she's like, if people don't buy my stuff, the stuff that we make, I won't have a job. You know, it's not that simple, but, you know, right. from her, we have to also consider their point of view as well so sometimes the people that we're trying to help we could be we could be hurting right. um you know you got to that with justin arducci's podcast and the work that he does you know my hell on earth was someone else's opportunity how are you received by the management or the higher-ups when you visit these factories in cambodia ethiopia like do they know what you're doing there do they try to stop you or anything like that yeah it varied so I was really, at first, I was really upfront with everyone, like, yeah. hey, you know, my underwear were made in your factory, or, you know, <laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and then I had a translator in, in Bangladesh named Dalton, who the very first meeting we went into with people in the industry trying to locate the factory where my underwear were made. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, you know, Dalton, tell them I'm an American journalist here trying to find the people who made my underwear. And he's like, okay, okay, whatever. So then it's like Bangla back and forth, we're talking. And then um, 
And then he leans over to me. He's like, Kelsey, by the way, you're an uh, American businessman here to buy like underwear. And I'm like, oh, like so I went going undercover as an underwear buyer <laughs> in Bangladesh. And like I knew nothing about anything, you yeah. know, when it came to. <laughs> Well, it comes to life in general, but when it comes to <laughs> underwear manufacturing like, specifically, yeah, yeah like, well, these yeah. are good. <laughs> One of the truly refreshing things about Kelsey is that despite his great success in writing and speaking, his focus on the individuals he meets and telling their stories well remains consistent and strong. In Cambodia, I actually worked with Levi's. Levi's was pretty good to me, mm-hmm. and they don't they don't have a Levi's factory anymore. But they buy, you know, a lot of jeans from all sorts of different factories. So they got me into one of those factories and I got a tour and they were really nice to me. And um, China, China was definitely one of the hardest places to kind of get in places. Mm-hmm. Um, there I acted on some information that the, um, that I got from the, the company Decker's Shoes. And I ended up getting yelled at like a vice president sitting in his office in California and, and, uh, so that was a really not great experience. So China was definitely the hardest one too. Yeah. I've had people approach me before about making like a documentary about where am I wearing. Um, and I just don't know how that would work. Because I go in there with just a notebook. And I think anyone who tells stories, for like other people's stories, uh, knows that all the best stuff comes when you put that notebook away. Yeah. So like that notebook gets between you and the person you're trying to connect with. Following his widely read work on exploring the origins and effects of the clothing manufacturing industry, Kelsey decided to engage with another topic that has massive implications on economies, communities, environments, and individuals. Yeah, so it really kind of goes back to the dump in Cambodia where, you know, these people were farmers who had looked at their lives and and chose to go to work in this dump that didn't seem like a great place. So I was kind of like wondering what's happening back on the farm and about the same time, I think it was like the 2009 range, the um, US, I think the US government started requiring more country of origin, origin labeling on food. So I started to see like mushrooms from China and apple juice from China and all these different foods from these different places. And so that kind of led to the where am I eating idea where I followed my um, Dole banana to Costa Rica, my Starbucks coffee to Colombia, uh, lobster, I don't really eat lobster, but I, I, this is a really unique situation in Nicaragua where they, uh, the indigenous um, mosquito Indians cap- capture us kind of redundant, but they hand catch lobster on scuba. Um, so I had some interest in that. Um, I also went to Ivory Coast in West Africa for cocoa and China for apple juice. And um, that was a much different experience. And the where my wearing experience it was flying into like a major city where if you wanted to, you could just like forget this, I'm going to the Holiday Inn. After that experience, you, you came back and obviously you wrote the book. And how's that book doing? It's doing well. Yeah, so it's very much kind of on the same path as Where Am I Wearing? And probably a little bit ahead of Where, where Am I Wearing was at this stage of the game because of the success of Where Am I Wearing? So it is getting used in college classes. It's um, getting starting to get adopted as common reads now. Mm-hmm. Um, get invited a lot to places to speak about it. Um, yeah, so it's you know it's not quite up to where where my wearing is at this point, uh, but it's you know very much on the same on the same path. Now that Kelsey's life is a little bit more tied down, having a wife and kids, and mortgage and insurance and all that, he's transitioning to the nonprofit world, where his love for storytelling is now being applied to people in his community and communities around the country. 
I think kind of what the third book is, it's not really a book, it's a nonprofit I co-founded called The Facing Project. And um, it's a community storytelling project that connects people through stories to strengthen community and does that by matching writers in the community with people facing a certain topic. Then the writers get to know that story well enough where they can write as if they were that person in the first person. The stories are collected into a book and then published and usually they can release at some kind of community event like a monologue or some kind of theatrical event or art exhibit. Um, and that really kind of came a place from, from where am I wearing and where am I eating? I mean, definitely, um, you know, I, I just had an email this week from someone who read Where Am I Eating and how much that changed the way that they eat. Or, and I met someone recently who changed, read Where Am I Wearing as a freshman and changed their major. You know, so those books have, have um, you know, hope, hopefully people have read them and have changed their hearts and minds in some small way or maybe even a big way, but there's no doubt about it, the person who those books have changed the most. The, not the books, but the stories, the people in those books have changed the most is me. Because I've met them and they've let me into their lives, and they've their children, I taught their grandma how to throw a frisbee, and um, and they've like gifted me with their story. And they shared it with me to share with other people. And that's a big responsibility that comes with that. And so that's really impacted me. And also in those experiences, I often see that, you know, I've been in some of the poorest places on the planet, where they often have a poverty of resources, but a wealth of community, and I'm sure that you see this mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, and then and I, so you start to look at your own life and where we come from, and think, wow, man, do I even know my neighbor? You know, when's the last time I saw my neighbor? More live, you know, like you just yeah. you yeah. don't know. And like in these villages you're at, someone was away for like two days, and people, and then they go around and shake every single person's hand when they get back, and you think they've been away for years, you know. <laughs> So in our own lives, I kind of see that we have the opposite, where we have a relative wealth of resources, but poverty of community. And so I started to get much more engaged in my community back in Muncie, Indiana, and sort of volunteer a lot more. And I was volunteering with this group who works with people in poverty. And at the same time, there was an editorial in the local newspaper about how many people in Muncie live in poverty. Is it, if you count Ball State students, which is our local university, uh, it's like 34%. But if you don't count them, it's only like 15%. And, and I'm like, man, this seems like a wrong way to look at it. It's like, I think the most important poverty statistic is one. Do you know one single person who lives in poverty? You know, so often we have such strong opinions, uh, of, especially right now we're in election season, right? right? Such strong opinions about hot button topics, immigration, you know, um, um, same sex marriage, like all these different things. Yet we don't often don't know a single person who was facing that topic. Right. Um, so I read that editorial and I want to do something. And so I pitched this idea to the nonprofit I was working with. I, I want to do a writing project where we're going to recruit writers, match them up with people facing poverty, and then we're going to bring these voices to the front. We can have this community conversation around it. So that was the first facing project. One of the writers I recruited was a guy named J.R. Jameson who um, works in higher education, like service learning. Like, he's like the state director of this organization called Campus Compact. And so he's like, this was a really powerful experience and like, let's make a toolkit. I'm like, I'm going to Columbia because my coffee was made there. <laughs> I don't know what a toolkit is, but I'm happy to talk about it. And I'm sure you have experience with this. All these different opportunities and projects present themselves. And at first they're just like blood, sweat and tears that's going to take. Yeah. And yeah. you kind of like yeah. dip your toe in like, do I want to do this? And sometimes you pull your toe out and like, no, nah, I don't think that one's for me right now. Yeah. 
so I dipped my toe in and then I was ankle deep and then knee deep and now um, we by this time next year we'll have um, communities well published 75,000 books uh, we'll have had 7,500 people participate in facing projects and have told like 1,500 some stories and all sorts of different topics from incarceration to addiction to sex trafficking to, to sexual violence on college campuses um, you know so I've, I've become really uh, you know a lot of these projects are educating me uh, on these topics as well so it's really you know there's the there's a the thing that's created there's a book that's created but it's kind of like this group effort and it's not the final product that is the goal it's actually the creating of that thing it's the people sitting down together face to face the editors getting you know, talking about these stories um, each project involves between 50 to 100 people and it's the neighbors meeting neighbors and the creation of the community that's the thing and you just happen to have a book and a performance or something on the radio that comes as a result of that Oh boy, so right now we'll be in about 75 different communities by the end of this year, uh, by the end, uh, this time next year, I guess. And I want it to be in hundreds of communities across the country. Um, I want eventually that there are a website now that we're having all these stories that can become like this repository of first person uh, stories, like you can search by topic. So um, like if you go to the doctor, you take your son to the doctor, and all of a sudden they say the word autism and it's concerned for your son, that this could be a place that you turn to. We could find these stories, and that's what we—that's what really we connect with when we're um, confronted with a life situation or a disease. Like the thing that helps most isn't reading the scientific paper about what's what's happening to us uh, or the social implications. It's it's finding that person who is five years ahead of us, who's been on that same journey, and they made it or they made mistakes, and then here's how they pick themselves back up, and right. you know they've survived through it, and. Um, so that's, I mean, it, that's just the, just these one at a time thing, you know, as we can talk about 75,000 this, 75,000 that, but it's really the, the single stories that people connect with. So for instance, you know, my son, who we're probably maybe hearing play with Legos right now on this, my wife took him to his 15 month old doctor's appointment and there was a list of quiet checklists. Does he do this, this, and this? She's like, no. And, um, he's like, what do you know about autism? And... She's like, not much. She's like, well, you'll come to learn a lot about it. Here's a place to schedule an appointment. It's like four months to get into this place. So she came home and told me, and we're just like felt so alone. Mm -hmm. And you know, like, well, you don't know anyone who who's been in the same situation before. Um, well, we do, but we just didn't know it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, like, what if the doctor could have handed her a book with 17 different stories of people in our own community who had been right there, list of resources in the back, and. So we ended up doing a Facing Autism project in Muncie. And most of the Facing Project stories are anonymous. They're, because they're in the first person. Mm -hmm. But often in the Autism Project, they definitely did this. They, a lot of people wanted their names to be known, their e email addresses to be shared. So Annie shared her story from her point of view and someone else wrote it as if they were Annie. And at the end of the story is Annie's email address. And she still gets people to this day that read about you know our story, read about Griffin, oh. who reach out to her and say, I have a young son. We just heard, like, what do we do? And I mean, that is, that's the goal of the Facing Project. There's a power in, in your individual story. If you're listening to this right now, there's a, you have, you've been through something, 
and maybe you've shared your story, maybe you haven't. And once you get to the place you can share it, like there's power in that that can really help other people. As he left our studio, Kelsey loaded into his minivan with his wife and kids on their way to visit their grandmother. He traded in one life of adventure for another, and we can't wait to see where he goes from here. Thank you so much for your time, Kelsey. To learn more about Kelsey and to find his books, visit whereamiwearing.com, where you can find links to his books, speaking engagements, and his recent blog posts. You can also follow him on social media at Kelsey Timmerman, that's T-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N, and learn more about The Facing Project at facingproject.com. I'd like to thank Rule 29 for the space and resources to create this show, and a huge thanks to Sleeping at Last for providing our amazing soundtrack. Steve Wick is our audio engineer, who is also the encouraging face behind the console telling me that I can do this episode by myself and without Justin. I can, you can't keep me cooped up in here, okay? I am a peacock! You gotta let me fly! Follow us online at designofpodcast.com and at designofpodcast. Up next, a magician who is dedicated to making you question everything you know about physics and how you see the world. Thanks, everybody.